obviously doesn't have a point-to-point -point detailed story of Jesus' life, uh, birth, but he does talk about Christ being the Word and was God, and he came in the flesh and dwelt amongst us. Uh, our catechism question is question 63. It's a pretty long one, and so we'll do our best trying to answer this together. What is the fourth commandment? And the answer is the fourth commandment is remember, remember the Sabbath, Sabbath day, day to, to keep, keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it shalt thou any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. Um, so we are uh, we are starting a new series um, for our Advent. We, I think since we've been in church, we've done an Advent series every year. You're kind of new to this language. Advent means uh, the coming, the Christ's coming. So his first coming is the, the Advent season. And so um, some people will use the word Advent to describe Christmas. Um, and as you see up here, this is an Advent rib. This is for St. Mark. They have different candles. And the middle candle, the white candle, is the Christ candle. And usually you light that on Christmas Eve. Um, and so um, you have four Sundays basically leading up to Christmas. And so these four Sundays we're going to be talking about uh, Jesus being the true and better uh, fulfillment of the Old Testament. So today we're going to talk about Adam. Next Sunday we're going to talk about Abraham and Moses. And then on the 22nd we're going to talk about Jesus' true and better David. So we're going to be talking about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And uh, so today we're going to talk about Adam. And so if you have a Bible, we are in the book of Romans chapter 5. Uh, the, the, the four Sundays that we're going to be doing this, we're going to kind of be all over the place in the Bible. So we're not going through any particular book or any particular chapter of the Bible. But uh, we are going to be reading from the Bible, obviously. And so today we're in Romans chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 12 and to verse 21. The Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. For the free gift following one man's from following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise and the, and, the, and the grace and the life and the peace that it provides to us, Lord. Pray, Lord, that you would teach us through your word. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would um, uh, sharpen our minds and hearts, Lord, to, to believe properly about Christ, to trust him, to rely on him for our salvation and for our grace. May we recognize through this passage the effects of sin in all of our lives, but also the effect of Christ's grace upon us. We love you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. Last night, the, uh, our kids watched the Rudolph Red and Reindeer, the, I guess the animated version, the old, the old version we're all kind of accustomed to watching on Christmas. And uh, after it was over, I was in the office, and I was watching a kid's video. And I was doing it for this sermon, and Lisa was like, what are you watching? Because she heard it was VeggieTales. And she's like, why are you in the office watching VeggieTales? Like, the kids need to go to bed. Um, and, and so, like, I wasn't doing it because I really wanted to watch VeggieTales, but I was doing it because of, of the particular uh, message that this particular episode of the VeggieTales was presenting. And, um, and, I'll, and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, um, basically, that... Uh, during the Christmas season, we get these movies that kids watch, right? And we, we accustomed to watching them with them uh, about the meaning of Christmas, right? And it's kind of a main theme for a lot of Christmas movies is what is the meaning of Christmas? And, you know, we, my favorite is Charlie Brown. I love the Charlie Brown Christmas, right? And even in that movie, what does Charlie Brown say? He screams out, he says... Can someone please tell me what the real meaning of Christmas is, right? He's so frustrated with his friends. He's trying to put on this Christmas production. They, they ridicule him because he gets this little dinky tree, right? And, and they ridicule him because he didn't, didn't, probably doesn't, never does anything right. And, and so they're ridiculing him. And he wants to just celebrate Christmas with this production. And he, he just yells out, what is the real meaning of Christmas? Of course, Linus with his blanket, comes up to Charlie Brown and says, and he basically he reads the book of Luke. He reads Luke chapter 2. He says, born in the city of David is a Savior, right? This is what Christmas is about. It's about Jesus Christ. A Savior has came into the world. The miracle of Christ's birth, his life and his death and his resurrection, this is the meaning of Christmas. It's about Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, coming into the world. This is the meaning of Christmas. But rarely do you ever hear that in Christmas movies. You rarely hear, at the end of the, of the it's like this dramatic movie of, 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 of some bad kid or a group of kids who forget what the real meaning of Christmas is. They think it's all about toys and getting, 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 getting from their parents. And at the end of the movie, they realize it's not about that. It's about giving to others. The problem with that is that's not what Christmas is about. And, and, and bringing up the VeggieTales story, VeggieTales, which started off as a Christian uh, program for children, 
had this Christmas episode called The Toy That Saved Christmas. And uh, Mr. Nezer, who I recognize as the same bad guy from the, uh, the bunny, the bunny, oh, bad, oh, the bunny, that particular episode of Veggie Tales with the Matt, uh, Matt, uh, uh, Red Shack, Meshack, and Benny, and how they were uh, with the chocolate bunnies and stuff. The same bad guy in that episode was the same bad guy in this episode. Now he was a toy maker, and he was making these, these toys called the Buzz Saw Louie, right? And the Buzz Saw Louie, if you pushed his nose, he would say, Christmas is when you get stuff. About getting more toys. Billy has more toys than you do. And this is the, the, like, the, the toy would say these things. That the real meaning of Christmas is about just getting, 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 getting. And Mr. Nezer wanted, wanted kids to complain to their parents that they needed a Buzzsaw Louie. They needed this Buzzsaw Louie. They needed ten Buzzsaw Louies. Because that's what Christmas is about. It's about getting things. But in the story, this, 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 this character, this, this toy, basically, I don't know if he has some type of like subconscious or he has this self-awareness uh, self, uh, that he says to himself... Christmas has to need more than just getting toys. And at the end of the, of the show, basically at the end it says, there must be more to Christmas. Christmas isn't about getting, it's about giving. Right? And in the show, the episode basically ends. Nothing about Christ or anything like that. But telling, the, telling children that Christmas isn't about getting, it's about giving. And so that is true, that it is more, it's better to give than to receive. Even Christ says this. But that's, there's far more to Christmas than just this idea of selfishness and giving. Altruism, this idea of give to others as God has given to you. This is a good message. This is a helpful and, and loving message. This is a unifying message. But it's not the true meaning of Christmas. The nature of the person of Christ and the true significance of his atoning death are the meaning of Christmas. And so I want to talk about Jesus being the true and better Adam. And so, if you were at the end for two or three guys that were at the elder training, you're going to hear a lot of things I said in that yesterday. So for y'all who weren't there, uh, you're going to get a little bit of what I talked about yesterday with some of the guys. But So the first point here in, in Romans chapter 5, 12-14, is that the reign and the power of death. The reign and the power of death. What do I mean by that? What does Paul mean by that? He says here that sin came into the world through one man. So when God created man in the beginning, he placed him in the garden. He placed Adam in the garden, and he established a covenant or an agreement with Adam. And this is all, this is not new to you. If you are not, you know, if you've been in the church for any time, you probably have, you probably have done some, some study or some, you've heard some sermon on Genesis 1 through 3, right? It's very, very important three chapters of the Bible. So God creates Adam, he places him in the garden, he makes a covenant with him, he makes an agreement with him. The conditions of the covenant was perfect obedience to the one commandment given by God. God does give a law in the first three chapters of Genesis. We don't have to wait till Exodus to get the Ten Commandments for God to actually give a law. He gives a law in Genesis chapter 2. He commanded the man, he commanded Adam to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die, Jesus and God says. Basically, God says that, here, I'm going to make this agreement with you. You can eat all the trees that are in the garden. You can eat as much as you want. You can't do one thing. There's one, one thing you cannot do. You 
Can I eat of the, the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil? If you eat of it, you will die. Now, we can go, well, why did he do it? Why did he put the tree there in the first place if he didn't want him to eat it? That stuff is not important. Because what God says is law. And so the law was you cannot eat of this particular tree. And God makes this agreement with him. He was the king, meaning Adam was the king, who represented the world before God. Adam had all the pleasures of paradise. He was a king in God's newly created universe. He was full of holiness. God had placed him Place his image in Adam. He knew God in a deep and intimate way. Adam knew God in a way that we did not understand. He was a favorite of God. Adam knew God's mind and had his heart. His direction in his life was perfectly attuned to God's will. Adam never had a moment in the garden like, I wonder what God wants me to do today. He knew. He was very much in tune to God. Basically, if Adam was perfectly obedient to the law, then he and his children would live in the presence of God and also enjoy access to the fruit from the other trees. He would live in harmony with everything in God's creation. He and his wife Eve would be in full peace together, innocent and free. Think about if you're married here. And all of us who've been married have had some issues in our marriage. We've talked to each other in bad ways. We have misunderstood each other, we've been frustrated with each other in some ways, we've done things to each other that are sinful. Think about that not happening. That's exactly what Adam and Eve felt like in the garden. They were free, they were in perfect harmony, they, they understood each other perfectly. This is what they got for full obedience to God's law. But they had to be perfectly obedient to it. They had to obey and they had to continually obey it. However, if Adam failed to be faithful to the covenant, then he would die both a physical and spiritual death. So we think of the idea that uh, when Adam did eat of the fruit, he didn't die immediately, did he? He lived hundreds of years later. He lived centuries later. But he did die spiritually if he failed to follow God's law. He ate of the tree, and also there was no, no, no place for repentance or hope if he were to fail. There was no mediator, no sacrificial system, no priest. Failure would lead to death. Adam eventually failed to be faithful to God's covenant with him, and he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he was commanded not to eat. His failure to obey God is defined as sin. What he did by taking and eating of the tree that God said not to eat from, he sinned. That is the definition of sin, is doing something uh, sinning is going beyond the law of God. The origin of sin actually starts with the devil. Sin is of the devil, right? Sin, Satan uh, sinned against God in, before Adam and Eve were even created. He sinned before God. Sin has defiled God's image and poisoned creation. Sin is a rebellion against God. Sin is an attempt to dethrone God. And God hates sin. Because it corrupts his crea creation like rust of gold... A slain, a stain to beauty. Think of the Mona Lisa. Have anyone ever seen the Mona Lisa? I've never been to France. I've never been to Paris. I've never been to the Louvre. But if you go to the Louvre, you can see Mona Lisa, which is considered one of the most famous pieces of, of art ever created by Leonardo da Vinci. Say you went to the Louvre one day. You're, you're so excited. You're going to go see the Mona Lisa. You go up to it, and instead of it being, it, you have it on the wall, and someone has taken a bottle of spray paint and sprayed it all over it. In the vicinity, 
Maybe they wrote, they drew something, something quite crude. That would destroy its beauty, wouldn't it? That's basically what sin has done in us. God has created us good, but sin has defiled. You can think of other things. Like one of my favorite things is the Rocky Mountains, right? I like to go skiing up to the Rocky Mountains. What if I drove there one day to go skiing, and all of a sudden I get up to the mountains, and they've all been strip mined completely, defiled, corrupted, no longer as beautiful as they once were. Their honor taken away, their majesty taken away. Sin has degraded humanity of its honor. Sin produces temporal evil. I said yesterday in our elder meeting, this is a, a quote from Thomas Watson. He says, Sin is the Trojan horse that has, that has sword and famine and pestilence in its belly. Sin is and home will bring destruction, not robbers from outside. Sin is the real enemy that's being presented into the world because of Adam's failure. Sin came into the world through Adam's sin. Because of Adam's failure to follow God's law, he took the tree, he's brought sin into the world. And, and Paul says not only has sin entered the world, but death through sin. Death spread to all men, Paul said. While Adam did not physically die immediately, he did die spiritually. Then he eventually dies physically centuries later. However, the effects of sin spread to everyone. Paul says that death has spread to all men because of Adam's sin. Since Adam was the representative of humanity, God entered into a covenant with all of humanity through Adam. Therefore, when Adam fell in his sin in the garden, we all fell. We are born into this world fallen creatures because of what happened in the garden. And humanity is born separated from God due to Adam's sin and the death sentence that resulted from his sin. It's interesting how Paul writes this. He said, so death spread to all men because all sin is basically Paul saying, on behalf of death. Because death has entered the world, because Adam has been separated from God, you then bore you sin. Sin is a result of death entering into the world. You don't sin because Adam sinned. Basically, Adam made a mistake, and so you're therefore a sinner because he sinned. The issue is, is that he was alienated from God, he was spiritually dead, you, are then, or you actually bring in that same nature, and therefore you sin. Because of death. Death, the alienation from God, spread to all. So when you're separated from God, when you're alienated from God, you will sin. It's basically what Paul is saying. Since we're all separated from God and share that same curse, we have no mind or nature to return to God. Every part of us is affected by sin at birth. The original sin brought on by Adam, which alienated us from from God is the cause of all actual sin. This is the womb in which all actual sins are conceived. You sin because you are created into a death nature. You are separated from God at birth. On the basis of death, entering the world, all sin. I don't know if you if you uh, if you read this recently or watched the news, but there was a terrorist attack in London. There was a man who wielded a knife and killed, I think, two people. Who was eventually shot by police. 
you ask the question, why do people do those sort of things? Why do people take a sword and a knife one day and say, you know what, I'm just going to start stabbing people? Like, how does someone get to that point? The question is, sometimes we like to isolate and go, well, that's, that's that person. He's a crazy person. Maybe he has mental issues. Uh, maybe he's just an evil person. Well, I'm not that evil. I would never do things like that. And so we almost separate ourselves and say, well, I don't do things like that. Therefore, I must be different. I must be better. But really, sin is sin in the eyes of God. Someone getting angry about someone's political views at the Thanksgiving table is equally sinful before God. Getting frustrated with your husband or wife or children is equally sinful before God. Looking lustfully at a woman or a man that's not your wife or husband is a sin before God. Lying on your own exam or your taxes is a sin before God. Due to our alienation from God and spiritual death, we sin. Just like the man in London, just like the people at their Thanksgiving table, just like the person who lies on their taxes. We sin because we are alienated from God. We are separate from God in Adam. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Sin was in the world before the law was given. This is what Paul says is that even before the law was given, sin came into the world. He says in verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Moses, Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though there was no law. Basically, you don't need a law to sin against. We are created through our original sin because of our Adam's alienation from God, because we are also alienated from God in death. We sin. We sin because death reigned. Sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Death reigns. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Even through those who lived between Adam and Moses and had no law, still were alienated from God, which results in sin. The power of spiritual death. What Paul is trying to get you to understand here in his kind of fancy language is that death reigned. Death reigned. And the power of death. That death and it's alienating you from God is what causes you to sin. Causing humanity to sin and to rebel against God, even when there is no law to value it. It's not like you have a law and say, well, I don't want to do that. Even when there is no law, we sin. Even when there's no law, we rebel against God. The law simply magnifies what is already true, that we're alienated from God and spiritual death, which leads to sin. You come into the world alienated from God. No communion with God. We have lost all favor with God because of Adam's fall. As Adam was removed from the garden, we too have been banished from his love and his favor. From God's love and his favor. We are what does Paul say in Ephesians 2? We are children of wrath. Our separation from God because of sin is an eternal reality. The soul is banished from the presence of God. God's wrath and judgment on sinners is the very accident and infancy of his of misery. The judgment without mercy or without end. This is what you get when you're born into the world because of Adam's fall. Death. Not only physical death, which we all will die physically, but we also receive spiritual death. Separation from God. Alienation from God. The judgment and wrath of God upon us. Children of wrath. And Paul says, at the end of this paragraph, he says, 
who was a type of the one who was to come. This is Adam's legacy. Death is Adam's legacy. And then, of course, Paul presents this, this word here in verse, 14, in verse 14. He says it, that Adam is a type of one to come, a stand or a model of one to come. Basically, Paul is presenting a comparison between Adam and Christ. The emphasis that Paul is trying to focus on here is the effect of their actions upon the rest of humanity, right? The effects. What is the effect of Adam's actions? Death. What is the effect of Christ's actions? Life. So Paul was to bring in this comparison. And he kind of starts going through that in verse 15. So the second point is the great undoing of God, of Adam's legacy. By Jesus Christ. The great undoing of Adam's legacy by Jesus Christ. This is verses 15 through 19. So the first part was showing the effects of Adam, and now he's going to start comparing and contrasting Adam to Christ. So he starts off here saying, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Like the free gift that is being brought into the world through Christ is different than the trespass of Adam. Many died through Adam's sin. The grace of God and the gift by the grace by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So God's plan to restore humanity to life by a redeemer. God has taken upon himself the promise to save us from our sinful nature through a savior. So death is in the world, death is spread to all men. This is the effect of Adam, Adam's legacy. But then now Jesus, God, is then going to bring life and grace through his son Christ. This is God's plan to restore humanity to life. To undo Adam's legacy of death, many died through Adam's sin. We are, we inherited that death. And before you were a Christian, you were alienated from God. You were separated from God. That's why you didn't want to worship God. That's why you didn't want to read His Word. That's why you didn't even want to be in communion with God. Because that is your, by your nature, through death. But Christ, Christ came to the world to undo Adam's legacy of death. But the free gift is not like the trespass of Adam. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. He is the Savior who was sent by the Father to establish the covenant of grace. Now, a covenant established through his body and his blood. A new king is presented. Adam was a king of God's creation, but then he fell. And then God presents a new king, a new representative of humanity is sent. One like Adam in every way, but one who is faithful. That's an important point here. The baby in the manger, right, isn't some super baby. He's not some mutant, right? He's not like Captain America or some crazy. He is a human. And as I said yesterday to the guys, he had a Y chromosome, right? He had the genetic look of Mary. He looked like Mary. Why? Because he shared her genetic code. He was in every way a man, absolutely a man. He had a human mind. Meaning he thought, he observed, he had opinions, he had a human will. He was tempted in every way, Hebrew says. Yet, he did not sin. He was always faithful and obedient to God the Father. He was faithful even to the point of death, death on a cross. He was just like Adam, but he did not sin. That is the clear difference here. So he is the proper mediator for us. Because unlike Adam, who failed in the garden, Jesus, who, which is awesome, 
Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gardens, right? What does he do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, he says, if there can be any other way, Father, that this cup could pass for me. But then what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done, right? I will be faithful and submit to your will, even to the point of death. That's where Adam failed. And Christ was faithful. The one who took on flesh was also God. He came and brought grace into the world as God. The one who was offended by sin is the same one who has satisfied his judgment of sin. The one who sent Adam out of the garden because he sinned is the same one who brings humanity back to God. Isn't that awesome? The person who sent Adam away is the one who brings humanity back to his own flesh. He's the proper mediator to take away the hostility between us and to remove God's wrath on us and to establish a peace accord. Those who were alienated from God were then brought to God. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 18. He brings us back to God. Alienated through death and death reigned in the world. And then Christ Jesus brings us back. The free gift is not like the result of Adam's sins. Adam's sins brought condemnation, Paul says. But Christ's gift brought justification to those many trespasses. Christ suffered in his body and soul for the remission of sin. He suffered that he might satisfy God's justice for us. He bared our alienation. Remember? He was separated from God on the cross. He was alienated from God on the cross. He takes that on himself. That eventual judgment on himself. So why? So that we can be declared righteous. Right. Once we were wrong, once we were brought into the world as children of wrath, but now we are children of God. We are then in the right before God. Grace has triumphant over death. Cleaning up the mess. If you have children, it is far easier to make a mess than it is to clean up a mess, right? Like children, for some reason, to make messes in almost like half a second, and it takes an hour to clean it up. It's always easier to make a mess than it is to clean up a mess. And Christ Jesus cleaned up the mess. Death was in the world. We were all alienated from God. We had no hope. We had no hope for repentance, no mediator. Christ comes into the world, and then he triumphs all that power of death. Death reigned through Adam's sin, physical death, but also the evidence of sin and hatred of God. The evidence of death reigned over humanity. How do we know that condemnation came through Adam? Because we all were born into a sinful nature. You just have children, and you can have this. They didn't learn the law. They don't read the Bible, but yet somehow they know how to sin. How is that to be so? Because they were born into a nature of death. But the reign of life through Christ, that we walk in the newness of life, the anticipation of eternal life, that we receive Adam's dominion, that we are now children of God, we are daughters of God, we are sons of God, we are then put in a place that Adam was placed it comes to our communion with God. Sin and death have been defeated. Sin separated us from God, but God's grace through Christ brings us back to God. Our relationship to God is re-established. It's reformed. Adam's sin brought judgment on all people. So therefore, Adam's trespass brought death. 
Christ's righteousness brought righteousness to all people who receive it, which leads to justification and to life. It's interesting how Paul writes that in there. He says, to those who receive it. He says there here in verse 17, much more with those who receive the abundance of grace. There is a condition to this. Like, you have to receive this. You have to trust it. You have to believe it. You have to put your faith in it. The sin of Adam, the sin of Adam all, elevated us all from God, who made us sinners, children of wrath. Through the obedience of Christ, many were made righteous. He was better than Adam in every way. Like Adam, but better than Adam. We are declared righteous and compared and, 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 and declared uh, we are declared righteous through Christ. We are declared sinners and are dead in Adam. He chose to submit to the will of the Father. Adam failed to submit to the will of his father. The third point, the last point, is the reign and the power of grace. Which is 20 through 21. The reign and the power of grace. It's interesting how Paul ends this section here. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to kind of the ever, verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespasses. Morality and the law have no power to make us right with God. The law is powerless to remedy the effects of Adam's sin. The law is powerless to, to break the hold of death. All the sin does is magnify our sin in our hearts. Paul's already established it's already there in your heart. You don't need a law to know that it's there. When you present a law, it just magnifies its thing. Israel had the law, what did they do? They didn't stop sinning, they sinned more. It led to more sin, which eventually led to more alienation from God. So when Christ comes, he brings a covenant of grace. Grace reigns over sin and death. A great power has come into the world to conquer death, and that is God's grace. Put on full display in Christ, he conquers the reign of death. Sin under the dominion of death, children of wrath, a new age began through Christ, he stands right before God in Christ. Because of Christ, a new age has come in. So now we can stand before God as right. And then Jesus, in his priestly office, he makes intercessions for us. Continually. Not only does he offer a sacrifice of himself on the cross, not only does he remove our sins, but he intercedes for us to the Father. Always. We have access to God. We have access to the throne of grace, Hebrews says. Because of Christ. He defends us. And, uh, Ian was mentioning this morning about Satan and, the, and Job. If Satan came into heaven and asked God, hey, that guy right there, he will, he will disown you. He won't believe in you. And know what happens? Jesus comes in and says, get away from my people. Those are my sheep, and no one's going to take them from my hand. That's what Christ does. To get Christ defends us. He's our advocate. He gives us righteous living. He gives us eternal life. All of these are through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Without, without Christ, we are all doomed to eternal alienation from God. And so when we think about this Christmas, we're not just thinking of a baby in a manger. We simply say, how can I do a better job of giving this Christmas? Or how can I do a better job of being selfless this Christmas? The way that we should look at the baby in the manger is the one who came to destroy the reign of death. 
that he brings into the world grace, which is a far greater power than even death itself. That's what we should think about during Christmas. Yep. Without Christ, without the baby in the manger, without his life, without his death, without his resurrection, without his ascension, without his continual intercessions, we remain in Adam. We remain separated from God. I want to end with that there's a uh, pastor in New York City in the early 20th century named um, Harry Emerson uh, Fisdick. He was a pastor between, uh, he, well, basically he became the pastor of Riverside Church in New York City, built in 1920 by John D. Rockefeller, Jr. And he was considered at that time the most famous American pastor in the 20th century. 1930s and 1940s, he was considered the most popular preacher in America. This was before Billy Graham. And he believed and he, pro he proposed that Christ was the ultimate hero. The ultimate hero. And he wrote this book called The Manhood of the Master in 1930. He had 12 chapters that were character studies in the life of Christ. Jesus was basically reduced to a model character or the hero to emulate. No different than a superhero for people to emulate and to follow. He wrote, he wrote, we can't follow Jesus, but only follow his character. Frederick argued for interpreting Jesus' life in the needs of our generation. The need of the 20th century was a superhero of human goodness and virtue. Jesus was free to be shaped after any person's own experiences. He used his self-sacrifice to empower us to do the same, or his heroism, or his desirable character traits for moral messaging. Devotion to Christ is encouraged to learn from his life how to live. The ideal character, the ideal virtue, the example of selflessness. A study lesson on gift giving. Reducing Christmas to the simple lesson of giving and not receiving. May we never think this December that Jesus is no more than a character study or a giving or unselfishness. May we not teach our kids that Christmas is about being good and it's better to give than to receive. But rather, we think and teach that Christ is the true and better act. He's infinitely more than a hero of our, for our age. The miracle of God's entrance into the world, His plan to save sinners through His body and blood, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we receive the abounding grace we receive righteousness, we receive justification, we've been brought to God, and we have eternal life. That's what the baby in the manger means. And to, think, to teach anything less, or to think anything less, is unchristian and unbiblical. Because without Christ, there's no reason for us to be here. Without Christ, we are still alienated from God. We have no hope of ever being in any communion with God, never receiving any of His graces, never receiving any of the hope that we have in Christ, never being able to praise His name like we did in Psalm 25 when we started without Christ. We would all be caught and enslaved to sin without any hope of ever getting out. Mm. Without Christ. So do not, do not fall into the trap that the world is trying to get you to believe. 
That Jesus is just simply a character study. Just to learn that it's better to give than to receive. Because even if you gave everything you have, even if you gave every present to every child in the world, you would still be dead in your sin and you would still go to hell. And that is something that cannot be done or redone without Christ. So please, be that the thing that you think about as we go through this Advent season and as you teach your kids what the meaning of Christmas is. And be careful when they watch movies. It's good to watch Christmas movies. But do a good job of, of watching what their messages are and pointing them to the true meaning of Christmas, which is in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray, Lord, as we think about Christmas this year, that we, we think about Jesus being the true and better Adam and the effects that Adam's actions brought into the world, that it brought death and alienation from God. But Christ's actions of faithfulness and obedience to you, Lord, brought life and grace abounding for many. That if we receive him, if 